coming up with different events throughout the country uh, to commemorate the, the Great War, which is interesting because 100 years have gone by and you know most people are not even aware of what World War I was. They only know that it existed because there was World War II. So there had to <laughs> been something you know, prior to that. Right, and we hope there's no World War III. <laughs> correct, correct. And if we had listened to the, uh, what happened after World War I, there wouldn't be any World War II or III. Oh, so you've sort of answered a question I was going to ask you about 30 minutes from now is, why should we care about World War I? But hold that question. Tell folks specifically the date that stuff is going to happen on the green uh, through your work and the work of the commission to make uh, World War I um, come alive again in, in a certain way. Yeah, well, there are, there are uh, two different, actually three different regional events, uh, one in Hamden and two here in New Haven. On April 8th, uh, you may have seen something about this. There's a premiere, world premiere, actually, of a film about a dog um, that was found in New Haven by one of the uh, uh, trainees, uh, Army trainees, who were camped on the New Haven Green. Uh, Yale had a Camp Yale uh, out near where the um, Yale Bowl is, but they would come into the New Haven Green and actually on the lower green um, have an encampment and uh, practice they did training there and that was part of uh, uh you know recruitment that they that they i thought it was a great idea this is not the movie this is real life this is in real life yeah we have photographs of this and uh the film actually is based on that now it's a it's a pixel type of uh, film it's animated it's called sergeant stubby an american hero correct but th- now was this movie conceived and produced in the specifically in the run-up to the centennial uh, I think that's kind of coincidental, but um, it's it's good timing, yes. All right, so take us back to the Yale Bowl. It's 1916 or ni- no, 1917. These guys are training, and uh, a little doggy shows up? Yeah, uh, he actually shows up on the green uh, and won't go away and basically uh, adopts the uh, one soldier. His name was uh, Conroy, Robert Conroy. And he became such a, uh, a part of of the unit uh, where they were training that uh, they wrapped him up and they smuggled him into France when they went uh, on the troop ship going across. So he became a canine member of the 102nd Infantry Regiment? Was that the outfit? Yes, 102nd Regiment, uh, the 26th Infantry Division. Of the of the regiment. Right. And um, and his, his dog is, now, let's, for, just, to, just to clarify for the Yale fans who are listening, is this, this is not the basis for Handsome Dan, the bulldog. No, because this this animal Stubby is a Boston Terrier. Is a, I'm, I'm, I think he's part Terrier. Yes, uh, he was definitely Terrier. He was not a bulldog, and he really didn't have. He didn't go to Yale. You know, he was uh, basically homeless. It was a homeless dog. Okay. Uh, when he got to France, uh, they found that he had incredibly good sense of smell, and he could smell gas before anybody else could. And he would bark, and and they'd set off the alarm. He also went out into the field and drag back wounded soldiers this is all factual this is all factual yeah he also um captured a german soldier one time holding onto the leg of his pants and he couldn't get away and they they took him uh they took him prisoner but stubby um when he came back to the united states he was was, he was decorated too yeah oh he received a number of decorations he's the most decorated dog it says in the synopsis in american history and he is the first canine ever promoted to the rank of sergeant. <laughs> yeah. Some say that he really never made sergeant. He was a corporal, but, you know, even being a corporal is a big deal if you're a doc. He, um, yeah, he, after the war, he was invited to many, um, you know, veterans uh, and, and, for, and uh, American Legion 
a post and it was in parades. He was, he was quite a, quite a character and quite a hero and, uh, was in demand for, for a long time for parades. In fact, one of the, uh, people over in France made him a little, little coat, which, uh, which he wore and all of his decorations were on that. Uh, he unfortunately passed on not too long after the war and, uh, he was, um, we'll just say that his, his likeness and his, his carcass is at the Smithsonian Institution, right by Cherami, <laughs> who was the famous pigeon that saved the Lost Battalion in, oh. in the First War. So we gave a lot of decorations to uh, the animals. To animals, then, yeah. So um, this movie is going to debut at the Criterion around uh, uh, around what date? Now you said there were three events. You you told us about the movie. Right. You said something in Hamden. Yeah, the movie is the first event. That's on April eighth. At the Criterion. At the Criterion, Okay. Yes. What and are the two others? The other is there's going to be uh, a, an encampment in Hamden, uh, across from where the town offices are in the city field. Okay. Uh, city Park, actually. Um, and that's going to be an entrenchment. We're going to be digging trenches that are uh, exact replicas of, of what they had on the Western Front. They'll be strung with barbed wire. And the reenactors of the 26th Infantry, which come from uh, Milford and all over Connecticut, uh, will be coming out and manning those stretches. It'll be like a living history. Uh, on what day is that? Um, that day is the twenty, the weekend of the twenty first of September. September. Yes. Uh, and we're 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 in the run up to um, uh, Veterans Day. Is that is that part of? Well, oh, wait a second, because April the April early April date is uh, is coincides with the the day war was declared. Correct. It's close. Yeah. Um, it was really the date that the criterion could actually work. Oh, it in. Okay. <laughs> um, All right. So it's a, that's another nice okay, co- so, coincidence. So the movie, the trenches in Hampton and is there something on our green? Yes. Uh, on October 12th to the 14th, there will also be an encampment on the green. Now we can't dig trenches obviously because it's the New Haven green. That's not allowed. In fact, they had to get a special, you know, permission just to put stakes in to hold the tents up. Yeah, the guy who's in charge of capital projects especially can't go digging yeah, right. on the green. Exactly, right. and um, that'll be a full uh, encampment with um, actually the National Guard, the state uh, uh, military division. Uh, the, the general sent me a, a letter. He's going to support us in any way. So he's sending us a Renault, that one of two on the East Coast, uh, a tank, tank, a, re- a tank, uh, that the preserve tank from. Yes. Uh, this is for October? This is for October, the 12th to the 14th. Okay. And that'll be on a, uh, going to be on a, on a flatbed, so it's not going to be, we're not going to be driving it around the green or anything like that. It'll just be in one place. It'll be parked. And also a, a couple of ambulances that actually date from uh, 1916 and, ni- and 1918, uh, both from the 26th and also from uh, uh, George King, who is out near Essex and has preserved one of these and, uh, and takes it around to various uh, uh, events will there be reenactments or other things in connection with the vehicles or uh, uh, no trench digging but will people be in formation will they be yeah it'll be it'll be a living history so what they do during the course of a day they'll be doing on the green just as they did it in uh you know 100 years ago on the green uh, also as part of this is we're rededicating the monument you know the only monument on the new haven green is the world war one monument i wanted to ask about that and that's the that's the flagpole Yes, it's with the, it, with the pool around it. Right. Well, the pool didn't exist for a long time. What they did was they it's a marble um, depiction of various scenes uh, with the names of the battles that the U.S. took part in uh, that goes around the base of the flagpole. Right, Flagpoles then, and added afterwards, and the names of the 261 New Haven uh, 
residents uh, who died in the war are also listed on that that monument. Is that right? You know, uh, how many times have have people walked by it and never noticed that? I noticed the names of the battles because uh, uh, Meuse Argonne, Chateau Thierry. Correct. Yeah. So, what was the the original uh, monument? Was was just a base without a flagpole? Well, no, they they always planned a flagpole, but first the base came in, and then the flagpole was added uh, afterwards. They had to structurally make this thing so that you know wouldn't wouldn't blow over. There used to be a flagpole over in the corner, you know, where the um, there's a uh, like an old fountain uh, over in the corner across from where Starbucks is right now. That uh, there used to be a flagpole there. That was later rem- that was removed, and where the uh, well, that's where, the Bennett Fountain. Correct. Well, that that's Correct. dates from the 1912. Right, right. There used to be a flagpole near that. So um, the flagpole that's the World War One monument dates from the 1920s. But are are there any other World War One um, uh, uh, memorials in the city of New Haven? We have a lot of Civil War, but what's World War One? Yeah, well, so the Civil War, of course, uh, was the worst conflict we were ever involved with: Americans fighting Americans, and every single uh, state uh, in the North uh, was was a part of that. And so, yeah, you have a great proliferation of, uh, of Civil War. 11, 12, there. 13 in town, I believe. Yeah, uh, World War One. Yeah, there is one. There is uh, one out near the Barnard School, directly across. Oh, uh, he's, there's a, right, a doughboy. Yeah, and uh, he was from New Haven. Um, and there is also a very large monument over at Yale. In Beinecke Plaza, uh, if you look on the interior courtyard of Woolsey Hall along the top frieze of the entire building are all carved in all the battles from World War One. That's right. Uh, and there's also a uh, monument, a big monolith, uh, which sits right in front of where the Beinecke Library is and the and Woolsey Hall, which, which is dedicated to the uh, uh, students at Yale who fought in the war. Right, because that, yeah, and, and, and why, and why, right, and of course, uh, the names of, of the soldiers who died are all listed along with all the wars inside Correct, yes. uh, the mm-hmm. Pantheon. Right. Very similar to what Harvard has at Memorial Hall. Right. Exactly the same thing. Right. Um, so we began our conversation by saying people don't think too much about World War One. We walk by these monuments. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're a real history guy and you know, uh, I've seen you in uniforms that date back to the Mexican war. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even the war of 1812. Um, wh- uh, <laughs> so my question is, um, what, what in your mind is the, apart from reminding people that this occurred a hundred years ago, why is it important and what lesson does it have in terms of, uh, uh, today? It completely changed the world. The world we live in today is largely a part of what came out of the First World War. Uh, Middle East, right? Royal Navy needed to have oil because they converted their fleet, which is the largest in the world, from coal to oil. They found a lot of oil in Arabia. Right. Uh, T.E. Lawrence not only was an archaeologist, but he was also working uh, for an oil company as well as a fellow named uh, William Yale, who right. was a descendant from Eli Yale. Uh, and together... Uh, they wrote up a number of uh, different accounts of, you know, what the geological features were there. So it became something that uh, people were very, very interested in. After the war, uh, the mandate between uh, dividing up that area between France and Britain gave us what is now Saudi Arabia, uh, the Balfour Declaration, which allowed uh, Jewish people to come in and, and settle in Palestine, created what is the modern state of Israel, 
all the conflicts that come from that actually stem from um, the Allies uh, defeating the Ottoman Empire, basically Turkey. Uh, and a lot of the Middle East, uh, all of the things that are happening in the Middle East, all really stem from what ha- took place in World War I. On the other side, monarchies fell. You know, Russia had a revolution. Uh, communism took over, took hold, and that changed, of course, changed our, our world for a long time. Uh, but it began there. Um, it was the First World War, so you had Japan on the rise. She was part of the Allies at that time. Okay. But all of the footholds that they had that we had to take back in World War II came as possessions from Germany that were given to them after the war for their help. Um, Africa, the nationalist movement started there. In the United States, um, black soldiers uh, were, who were segregated. There, there was no uh, integration. When they asked for volunteers, uh, black communities came out. And that's going to be part of what we're doing at this uh, rededication of the monument, by the way, on, on the green, because they're largely forgotten. But there's a big story about that and where they could go to actually enlist. That's going to be in October, the rededication? Yeah, that'll be, okay. that'll be part of the program. Right. I should tell you what the program consists of is... Now, for, for the, this is the rededication in the fall? Yes. Okay. This is on the last day of the 12th to the 14th. This is at okay. 1 o'clock on the 14th. And what will happen is the, uh, we're going to follow the same procedure that uh, they did in 1929 with the original dedication. I have a copy of the, the book that they printed for that. Uh, we'll be following the same. Only we're going to update it and make it relevant for people today. Uh, they'll be able to listen. I have two speakers that are coming, uh, two uh, professors, uh, one from Yale and one from the uh, uh, military uh, department in, in Washington, teaches at Carlisle. Uh, and they'll both are well-written uh, uh, authors uh, about the about the subject of World War One. They're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about what it meant to people in New Haven. I want to make that connection right. clear. There's a lot of uh, things that have just been coming out over the past few years. You can but, hold that book up. I think for our uh, Facebook Live people, yeah. it's, it's New Haven in World War One. World War One. This is by uh, Laura uh, Macaluza, who I had the pleasure of meeting out at Southern Connecticut State University one day. Uh, and she wrote this book, and it's very relevant because it talks about how New Haven people, uh, both not just the soldiers, but also peacetime people that were here, uh, how they reacted to the war, what they did, what New Haven did as a, as a community. Before you tell us about the program on the actual day, can you give us a few highlights? I mean, what, what did World War I mean in terms of, for example, uh, uh, economy and industry or uh, right. those kinds of things? Here, give, give, give us some bullet points for, because I, I, I think that... Uh, 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 you're absolutely right. It it really did uh, vehicle use. It's a uh, you know what? Here's a staggering um, statistic. All the armaments that were made, uh, both uh, for but mostly for the Allies before we got into the war, were produced in Connecticut. We had arms manufacturers here that were second to none in the world. All right. So the entire British Army, when they ran out of Enfield rifles, they began making American versions of the Enfield rifle here. Uh, the Tsar of Russia purchased uh, Mosan the Gant rifles that were made here in New Haven. Uh, if you ever go up here, up, up in at the Winchester Works, the Winchester Works. Yes, what happened was we made them just for the Allies, I assume. Well, there wasn't much being shipped to the Germans at that point because yeah. there was a blockade right. that Britain put on them, uh, so that you, being a country which only has a small coastline, right. there wasn't right. much that could get through there. Right. People who need to know, of course, that the, the war was going on viciously killing off millions of Europeans between 1914 and 1917 before the U.S. entry. Exactly. Yeah. It was about 26 million were killed by that time. 
but continue. Yeah, you were talking about the... the in, in terms of the economy, right. um, Connecticut was doing very, very well um, because of, because of, the, of war the war and what, what they were selling. And you know, if you ever go up 91, you'll see on the Colt Firearms Building, there's a, an onion dome, a brilliant blue, powder blue onion uh, like dome. Like a Russian onion dome? Yeah, it's a Russian. And that was a gift from the Tsar for all of the... On 91? Near what? Just uh, before you get to Hartford proper, you look on the left as you're coming into town. You can't miss it. It's oh, that's right. That's that's the that's the site of the manufacturer. Right. That's where Colt Firearms is located in that wow. old that old building there. Boy, my trips north on ninety one will never be the same, Bill. <laughs> well, please go on. Um, here, uh, the, for, for the first time ever, they started doing something called uh, community gardens, and these were uh, called you know war gardens. They were to grow food. Uh, because we had to ship a lot of the food to England because they didn't have enough food to really feed themselves at the time. So there were convoys that were constantly bringing food in. So here, in order to supplement what was what was going on, um, gardens sprouted up everywhere. So people grew gardens to feed themselves so that the other supplies could go to the... Right, because by this time, the, the primary allies, the English and the French, were utterly exhausted. Correct, yeah, especially uh, Britain, the United Island nation... With the submarine warfare they were uh, suffering, they, there was not, not enough food. They had about two weeks of food left um, when we came into the war. Right. So it wasn't just the American participation of soldiers, but the country's industrial might, a lot of it headquartered in Connecticut. A lot of it, had, yeah, it for armaments, yes, in Connecticut. It's a, unfortunate we have none of those now, um, but they, what, they, put, they put Connecticut on the map in terms of uh, you mm. know, economic powerhouse. What else was going on in Connecticut in terms of immigrants? What was going on culturally? Because, of course, New Haven had a lot of German immigrants who, who, who had come in in the 19th century and so on and so forth. And, there, uh, uh, and I'm sure there, was, uh, uh, there were issues in connection with them uh, and uh, a part of the re- reluctance uh, to enter maybe where there were there prejudices that played out for better or for worse? Uh, it wasn't like in World War II. In World War I, um, the orientation of, of immigrants coming into the country was they wanted to become Americans, first and foremost. When they came, they would meet and they would stay with their own uh, communities until they were comfortable. Then the first thing they did was they began to learn English and they wanted to become Americans. There are many uh, Americans who were drafted into the uh, Army in the First World War who were German. They came predominantly from uh, the Midwest, mm-hmm. you know, around Wisconsin and North Dakota, places like that. But yeah, Connecticut had a, had a sizable population, and they supported the United States in this. This was a very, very patriotic war. For years, we were isolationists, didn't want to get into it. Uh, the president uh, actually campaigned in 1916 on you know, a slogan, he kept us out of war. Right. right? Didn't want any part of it. We don't, we're not getting entangled with anything overseas. President Woodrow Wilson. Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, yeah. And of course, that changed when... Uh, well, two, two things. Uh, one was the start of unrestricted submarine warfare. Right. And now, the, that was the main one. That's where they were sinking ships on site. Passenger ships. Passengers. Uh, any, anything that was crossing that it went into the zone around uh, the British Isles right. was a target. The other was uh, something called a Zimmerman note. And that was a co- encoded uh, note from Germany to Mexico saying, if you join us in the war, Will especially if the United States comes in, we will give you Texas, California, New Mexico, Arizona, and parts of California back since they took it away from you in the Mexican War. And oh, wow. Also purchased. That's right. That, yeah. That's astonishing. And that was, I mean, when you get a country asking another country to go to war against the United States on our southern border, 
that you don't ignore that. And so right. uh, they asked, they asked for a declaration of war. Right. And we were in it for eight, 18 months in total. We didn't really send that many troops over in 1917. It was a kind of a token, uh, Pershing, General Pershing, who was named the commander. And that was a good choice, by the way. I'll tell you how that relates to the African-Americans. Right, because uh, he, he was uh, nicknamed Blackjack Pershing. Blackjack Pershing. And it wasn't because of a little, uh, you know, club that he carried or anything. It was because he was in command of black troops in the West, uh, you know, during the Indian Wars. And he was also in command of the 10th Cavalry. The 10th Cavalry went up right alongside uh, Theodore Roosevelt and the Rough Riders at San Juan Hill. This is uh, in the 1890s, 1898. War, 1898, right. Uh, for some reason, the 10th Cavalry didn't get the same credit that Theodore Roosevelt got getting to the top, but they got there at the same time, and they really, they were on the flank. Uh, uh, right, a lot of black right. soldiers. Yeah, and uh, when Pershing remembered that, I mean, he knew what they could do. Unfortunately, the War Department uh, said, no, we're, it's going to be segregated. We can't have, uh, you know, volunteers and, you know, white soldiers from, like, South Carolina serving when there'll be friction, there'll be, you know, all kinds of problems. Uh, but the French didn't have that problem. The French had integrated units uh, because of, uh, the colonies and because they they were always ex- accepted as part of society right uh in france so the british and the french were pleading with pershing to release americans to work to actually join their forces to try and hold the line until the americans were trained up and you know ready to uh, field our own army which is what uh, pershing and woodrow wilson said we're gonna have an independent army we're not fighting under anyone else well he didn't have a problem with uh having uh, the black soldiers fight for the French. Now, isn't it interesting that uh, they became the most decorated unit in the French army, other than the French Foreign Legion during World War I, and came back the 369th out of New York City, which is where a lot of New Haveners were part of that, because that's where they could go right. to sign up. We were part of that whole uh, thing. And the other thing that's sort of interesting, too, is that the uh, fellow who was the... Uh, he was a lieutenant, and he served in the trenches, and he went to war, but he also had a band uh, for the 369th, and they played music, which today we call jazz. Uh-huh. And took, took Paris by storm. They were, they, in fact, they didn't come back till after the war was over uh, and became world famous. Came back here. They, were, they, they issued the Jazz Age into existence. What was the name of the... Uh... Uh, it was, the group or the music, uh, the, well, the, the soldier musicians. Well, it was, it was the 369th band. Oh, it was their band. But was, yeah. Right. But it was James uh, Reese Europe. That was his name. Mm-hmm. Interesting. His name was Europe, uh, who had put it all together. Uh, I mean, part of what we're doing on this 14th is the Yale uh, concert band, uh, Dr. Duffy, has agreed to bring the band out. They're going to be in uniform playing music on the green that's period music from that date, from the where things that you would hear back then on the day that we do the rededication of green. That'll in, be part in, of what Including those, some of the, the that jazz that you're talking about. Absolutely, yes. How fabulous is that? And, you know, apropos of the, the, the general question of the, the effect or the influence of World War One and why we should know about it, if I'm not mistaken, the, the uh, around town there have been uh, exhibitions uh, to, uh, to mark... Uh, the centennial and one that sticks in my mind that I went to is over at the Beinecke. Um, among their materials are um, photographs, I believe of the 369th marching 
or not the not uh, of the soldiers marching down Fifth Avenue in their return. These soldiers, the black soldiers who served in um, in the army, uh, were were among the people who helped to found the uh, NAACP and the early um, uh, uh, black self help organizations. Yeah, they they started uh, uh, especially out in Chicago, for instance. Uh, whole communities uh, sprang up from uh, soldiers who later went out there uh, to work after the war uh, in order to, uh, you know, see if they could, like, you know, get get their rights that they that they that they, they were they were looking for that they should have had, you know, a hundred years earlier. Do you think their experience with the French, who were much more accepting, who did who who didn't think about race the way Americans have, do you think that experience? Uh, was uh, uh, a really uh, a significant ingredient in in in, um, in the forming of uh, NAACP and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, it was an eye opener. Here they were fighting in a segregated unit, part of the American army. They wore French helmets, wore American uniforms, and used French rifles. They couldn't even fight for their own country. Right? Yet they were totally accepted by the French. Not just you know to fight in the area, but also socially. That's right. You know, they could go anywhere, and they right. couldn't do that in the United States. And this is why uh, cultural figures like, starting with Josephine Baker and uh, even up through uh, James Baldwin, when they got sick and tired of what, having to put up with stuff here, they th- there was a history or a, a cultural knowledge that you could go to France mm-hmm. and you wouldn't be uh, typecast all the right. time. Right. Was, Paris was a magnet for right. intellectuals and, uh, and right. for those who were... Seeking change. So World War One here on Dateline New Haven with uh, Bill McMullen, who's with the Centennial Commission, has an awful lot of um, has an awful lot of resonance. Um, what about the lethality of the war? I was just uh, I, I looked quickly and I was struck by uh, we were only in the war for Eight, eighteen months. Eighteen months, and yet uh, if you go to the United States World War One Centennial Commission site. Right at the beginning, it says, we honor the more than 4 million American families uh, who sent their sons and daughters to serve in uniform during the Great War. 116,516 U.S. soldiers gave their lives in combat over that short period. Another 200,000 were wounded, and that's a casualty rate far greater than in World War II. uh, More than 350,000 African Americans served in the U.S. military. That's a huge number, as did Native Americans and members of other minority groups. And for the first time in history, women joined the ranks of the armed forces. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, the war was so horrendous that uh, they, were, they would turn nobody down. You know, we needed people to do virtually everything, from unloading ships to fighting in the trenches. We started the war with 187,000 soldiers. Total. Total. Total in the American Army. In the, in the American Army. Totally unprepared for war. We had no artillery. We had no airplanes. Uh, we invented the airplane, but we didn't have any. Um, so, at least for, for war-making purposes. Right. And everything that we used over there was pretty much French artillery, uh, British artillery, French airplanes. You know, everything that we did, we had to use their equipment. But we just supplied men. And after the first year, we, we, we came over with, uh, I think it was the first uh, division and also the uh, 26th. Now, the 26th Division, which is the, the New England Division, which is going to be portrayed here in New Haven, they, the officer corps came from Harvard, Yale, Brown, Princeton. You know, they, were, they were mostly New England. And they had a lot of connections. And so they 
went to France on their own. They got their own troop ships out of Boston, and they sailed for France. <laughs> now, the, the War Department in Washington um, expected them to show up in New Jersey for training. Pershing was just as surprised as anybody else because he brought the 1st Division, the Big Red One, over to France, and then all of a sudden there was this National Guard Division. He didn't really think highly of National Guard troops. In fact, most of the generals that came over wound up getting replaced as, as the war went on. But here you had uh, a full division over there along with, the, and so they went into, uh, into training immediately uh, ahead of, of pretty much everybody else that came over there. By the time we were done, we had 2 million there and there were 4 million in the army. Now think about that. 18 months, you go from 187,000 to 4 million, all trained. And remember too, the war was expected to last until 1922. They didn't think it was going to end in 1980. Even with the American entry, I thought that was supposed to... to That was supposed to keep them from losing. <laughs> Basically, when we got there in the nick of time because uh, Germany put together what they called their spring offensive. Right. And that came about because once Russia was knocked out of the war, they were able to move their troops from the Eastern Front to bolster the Western Front. And they came up with a new way of fighting. Uh, and they went right through all, all the... the the previous three years of war, all those gains were taken out by the, by the Germans. What did they do that was so significant that was different? Well, they learned a lot from, you know, when they began the war, people were getting out in waves, straight lines, marching toward... Right, the, 19th, a 19th century. Machine, 19th century warfare. Right. Now they sent out small groups to go through the lines, much, much like a, um, a foot blitzkrieg, in a way. Mm. Uh, you know, the small groups would go through your lines, uh, and go as far as they could, and then consolidate, and then others would come up to mop up. So you had you were punching through a line, whereas before everything would bounce off the line, uh, because you never really got your entire army up there because they never got that far. You know, you had barbed wire in front of you. You had, you know, at this point you had aircraft strafing. You had all kinds of things that you didn't start out with in the war that developed over this time. And it was, you know, you think about it, this was the worst war i mean even in world war ii they didn't use poison gas uh, uh that, know, that's right uh, that's on right the battlefield you know i'm talking about and and poison right. gas there were three different kinds and each one was worse than the other you had submarines you didn't have submarines in wars before you didn't have airplanes right um you know you moved your armies to the front on locomotives you know in trains they didn't march there right uh, cavalry now became obsolete because, right the last the last cavalry battle ever was between some austrian outfit and uh and somebody in 1916, I believe. Yeah, in World War One, there there was a uh, the last cavalry charge ever was in 1941 in the Philippines. Oh, U.S. My. 26 cavalry attacked the Japanese and drove them across a river, which allowed Wainwright and all the other troops to cross over into Bataan. And by cavalry, they <laughs> meant really horses. They were at on that horses time. with 45 cal- you know pistols. Why, why, why is something coming to my mind as you describe uh, the lack of preparedness at the beginning of World War One? That uh, is it before or after World War One that Douglas MacArthur or his father is in charge of a unit of camels um, <laughs> uh, 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 by 1910-1912 who uh, they're, they're trying to see if camels can surpass the role of horses, especially uh, in places like the Middle East. And was not a, a, a MacArthur in charge of that at that time? Uh, Am I making this up? No, 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 you're, you're right. Because the Connecticut College Camels, which is their mascot, derives in part from 
this because that school was founded in 1912 and that was in the news. Yeah. Uh, well, that didn't go very far. Camels didn't didn't do that well over here. Uh, we didn't grow up with camels. We grew up with horses. It was really hard to even get people to accept the idea of riding a camel. But Bill, when you mentioned the the gas and as part of the lethality of the war, it, you know, in in the American imagination today, there are a, a, you know a few triggers that when they do happen immediately, if if you've learned anything about World War One, if you could remember it from your U.S. history class. Uh, it comes to mind, and and when uh, Bashar al-Assad uses poison gas or chlorine gas uh, in Syria, uh, uh, you know, against his opponents, in my mind, uh, an image of World War One comes to mind. Yeah, well, it was the first time that it was used as a as a weapon, instrument of war. So, uh, and they, they had to come up with countermeasures for this because nobody knew what to do. The first uh, gas attack came against uh, African Americans, uh, Senegalese. That, I think they were Senegalese anyway, uh, that were manning the line and part of the French lines. And, you know, it was terrifying. They didn't know what to do. Right. Uh, they found they, what they do is they would urinate on a, on a rag and hold it over their mouth and nose, and that worked. That was for early chlorine gas. Right. Later on, when they went to mustard gas, there was, if it got on your skin, you would blister. So you had to be covered entirely. And the gas mask itself developed uh, two or three iterations before they came up with one that actually really worked. All right. Well, Bill McMullen, thank you so much for uh, calling uh, our attention and New Havener's attention to the upcoming centennial. Let's just, as we as we conclude, let's just uh, remind people of those dates again. Uh, um, Sergeant Stubby, the actual little doggy that was discovered uh, at the Yale Bowl, who went on to become a canine hero. Now that's going to be at the Criterion. Uh, Next week, week after next? April 8th, yes. On April 8th. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to have actual trench digging in Hamden. Right. Uh, in uh, September. In September 20, for that weekend of September 21st. September 21st. And here in New Haven, the long weekend of October 12th to the 14th, we're get, we get to see Peugeot tanks and other vehicles. One, one tank. One tank. It's, it's and a Renault. Two, it's a Renault. By the way, it's Renault, not, not Renault. It, it's no bigger than a compact car. I, mean, I know. This was not a big thing. Right. Not a heavy thing. It's right. It's amazing that anybody would even get into one of these things. Right. Uh, yeah. uh, and and um, just before we conclude, I also I know you're a, re, a reenactor and you're going to be part of this, and you've you've brought in as as we'll see uh, some some uh, helmets and so on and so forth. But um, uh, uh, why do you think it's important, just in general, for people to understand history? And does New Haven as a city with world j- just give me um, you know, 30 seconds of your take to, are we using our resources or using our monuments or using our history, uh, in, um, as productive a way as we might here in town? No, I don't think so. I think history has been downgraded. It's, uh, I don't even teach history as a, as a course now in the, in the public schools. I think right. it's social sciences. I'm not sure what, what label they give it now, but you know, if you don't understand where you came from, it's it's really hard to think about going in the future. Everything is right now is based on where we are now and where we're going in the future. You got to really know where you came from. You got to know about the past. You don't want to make the same mistakes. Uh, you certainly don't want to uh, you know follow uh, paths that uh, you know don't bring you the success that you expect. And you know history is an interesting thing because at one time it was current. It was what was happening at the time. It only becomes history until afterwards. And then you think of it as being something that's never going to happen again not true right 
uh, we've repeated history over and over and over again, and we still don't seem to learn. Right. Well, on that cautionary note and the uh, and philosophical note on the mysteries of time, thank you very much, Bill McMullen. Uh, before these dates come around, you also can catch uh, an exhibition uh, uh, based on the experiences of, uh, uh, I think, Lieutenant, uh, uh, Philip English, a uh, uh, is that an American or yes. a Brit- an American soldier at the New Haven Museum? And there's also a very interesting exhibition that you could whet your appetite about World War One with at the Knights of Columbus Museum. It's called Beyond the Home Front, right. and um, the uh, Knights of Columbus community, the Irish community, for them, uh, it's it, it's also hugely uh, important um, in terms of uh, you know developing their social services mm-hmm. and the kind of uh, protocols that that they were able to use. Um, uh, out both um, uh, in Europe and uh, back in the United States. Thank you, Bill McMullen, for joining us on Dateline New Haven, and uh, let's look forward to the World War One centennial. Okay, thank you. My pleasure.